Um, we're in John chapter 12, verse 20 through 33. Uh, it's where we left off last week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, understanding its context, and then bringing relevancy to the Scripture and to our hearts as the Spirit of God will uh, take the truth and apply it. So let's turn together, uh, John 12. There's Bibles in the back if you don't have one. It's our gift to you. You can take it with you. John chapter 12, verse 20 is where I will start off where we left off last week. Now... John 12, 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and, I, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, Jesus says, verse 27, is my soul troubled And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it was thunders. Others said an angel has spoken. But Jesus said the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Pastor Ricky did just a great job last week uh, bringing to our attention how the miraculous signs of Jesus were culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, people began to see his power and his glory, his worth and his value, while others, particularly the religious leaders of that day, begot, began to get more hard toward Christ. We know that after Jesus had raised Lazarus out from the tomb, the Jewish leaders got together in chapter 11, verse 53, and thought, you know what, hating Jesus isn't enough, let's try to kill him. And they sought to kill him from that moment on. And not only did they try to kill Jesus, the scripture tells us right before our scripture reading that they tried to kill poor Lazarus for the second time. And if they had accomplished it, he would have died twice and then died again. It would have been three deaths. That's pretty rough. I feel bad for the brother. But we're in the Passover season. Jerusalem is packed. And again, last week, Ricky pointed out that Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they had thrown a party for Jesus. In honor and thanks that he had risen their brother from the dead and Lazarus was there. And it was there that Martha was serving the Lord and doing her thing. And, and Martha was serving, loving, and, and, and uh, being very devoted to Jesus as she took the denard, this very expensive perfume, broke it on his feet, wiped it with her hair. We see this beautiful uh, expression of love toward Christ. Saturday, the very next day, which would be Sunday, which is historically called the triumphal entry, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. We see that in, ver- in chapter 12, um, verses 12 and following. He comes in. It's kind of a dramatic 
entrance. There's a, there's a donkey. He's riding in on a donkey. There's palm branches being waved. They are singing uh, the Hillel, which is called the Hillel. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're looking for a military king. Not the king that Jesus, well, he's going to be a military king, but that wasn't the reason he came first and coming into Jerusalem. He was on his way to the cross. And, and they wanted a king, and they, they had a, a lot of shouts of praise. And, and that's somewhat like today. You know, uh, there are a lot of people who will worship the Lord, will sing praises to his name when it's about their agenda, when it's about their happiness, uh, when, when, when they want to welcome Jesus in, providing he does what you tell him to do. And that's kind of what was going on. And Jesus was not the king they were looking for. He was the king that was going to the cross, not to the throne in Jerusalem or in Rome. Some people want Jesus only when he does what they tell him to do. And we pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continue to bear witness. Lazarus was dead, he stinketh four days, and now he's alive, and they're having dinner with him. Well, they had dinner with him. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, verse 18 of chapter 12, was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees, verse 19, said to one another, you see, we are gaining nothing. You can almost hear the irritation and, and the desperation in their voice as they point their finger at one another. We can't stop this guy. If you remember a couple of weeks ago in, Rome, uh, in chapter 11, verse 47, the whole Sanhedrin got together and said, this guy, we got to do something with him because when Rome finds out he's having more followers, we're going to be in trouble. They're going to take our position in the temple. Remember, Jerusalem was ran by the priest and the Sanhedrin, the power brokers of Israel, but under the banner of the Roman authority. And they were afraid that Rome would intervene and the power brokers of Israel, the Sanhedrin, would lose their power. And Jesus was getting to them. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 19b. They say, look. I mean, what are they going to do with this guy? He's gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That remark not only displays great concern, but you can hear the anxiety and the fear. Everyone's going after him. We need to get rid of him. Everything we're doing to get rid of him has failed. And the whole world is going after them. And we've seen this in John, the ironic statements that are being made. In fact, that's the aim and the purpose of Jesus' mission. He was not only to be king of Israel, he's king of the universe. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he died for the sins of the world. And if you notice in the text, it is precisely this whole world scope that John says that they said that, you know, the whole world is going after him that triggered the arrival of the hour. Mark that in your Bibles. The decisive turning point of the person and work of Jesus and the clear display of the glory of God. The hour, the decisive turning point here, we see in John 12, of the person work of Jesus Christ and the clear display of the glory of God. This text that I just read is all about the glory of God, as was the resurrection of Lazarus. If you remember, Jesus allowed Lazarus to die, waited four extra days, remember, so that he could love them by displaying his glory to them. 
The embracing and seeing, trusting, loving, treasuring of God and the glory of God is the best and supreme way and God reveals his love to us when we see him for all who he is. And as we move through this text, we're going to see him display this glory again. We're going to see it in three ways, in three conversations, three discussions. The first way we're going to see the glory of God is the glory in death as Jesus has a discussion with his disciples. The second way we're going to see is glory and purpose. Jesus and his discussion is prayer with his father. And third, we'll see glory in action as Jesus turns to the crowd and displays his glory in three ways. Two negative, one positive. That's where we're going. So glory in death, glory in purpose, glory in action. Let's look first at the glory in death. Now look at verse 20 and we see the request. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Some of your Bibles might have Gentiles, non-Jews. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Philip, I'm not sure, maybe didn't know what to do with the request, goes and gets Andrew. Andrew's the guy that likes to take people and bring them to Jesus. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, who the Greeks are, we're not 100% sure. Some people think they were Greek-speaking Jewish that were up in, uh, at Jerusalem during the Feast of, of uh, Passover, which is right now. Place is jam-packed. It's one of the mandatory feasts for all Jewish males. It's jam-packed. They were Greek-speaking Jews. I don't think that's what some people think. I don't think the text shows us that. I think what the text is saying with the whole world, now the Greeks coming, I think the text says that they're Greeks, meaning that they were proselytes. They were, they were Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews who were converted to Judaism. And they, were at, and they would come to the temple from time to time, especially during the feast, as a place for worship. They were proselytes who were half-converted. They, 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 they didn't keep the dietary laws and stuff of nature. And uh, they were like Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts. Um, and Cornelius was, was a, a non-Jew who loved the Lord, who prayed to the Lord, who gave money to the Lord. They were like outside Judaism, kind of looking in, knowing that this is right, this is good, this is what I want. They were like half proselytes. True, full-blown proselytes, non-Jews that became Jews, had to go with dietary laws, had to change all the dietary laws, and the males had to circumcise themselves. So there wasn't a lot of them. Just so you know. That's supposed to be funny. But anyway... Because that was the case, I'd be all alone today. But anyway, (laughs) rough crowd. Anyway, in Jerusalem at this time when the temple was built, there was an outer court of the Gentiles, it was called. It was where non-Jews and Gentiles, non-circumcised males, uh, those who didn't take full proselyting into Judaism were allowed to gather. There was a place call the court of Gentiles. That's where they gathered. And we sometimes think that when Jesus shows up on the scene and grace is extended to all the nations, that it began with the coming of Jesus. That's not true. That's not accurate. That is wrong. As far back as God's call on Abraham, as far back as God called Abraham and then his prodigy, his children, and called the nation into existence, God was all about declaring his glory through his people by grace to the nations. We think of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, started in Matthew 28. It did not. God was always about all people of the earth. Yes, he chose Abraham. Yes, he chose the nation of Israel. But they were to be lights and, 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 and salt 
to the world, to the nations. I mean, even Abraham was, when Abraham was called, we studied this, we went through Genesis. He said to Abraham in the covenant, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor and curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, in your family, in your lineage, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations on earth shall be blessed. There's no doubt that God was interested in winning the nations outside of Israel. So what's the point here with John? Again, he writes in an ironic way many times. Why is John saying now here, the Greeks want to see him? He is showing us that although salvation is from the Jews, Jesus being a Jew, the events of Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his atoning death is for the whole world. And you may be here today because you're a non-Jew. Maybe you're here and you're Jewish. You're thinking, that's a no-brainer. I mean, of course Jesus loves all people, but that's, that's not what was going on in that day. That's not what's going on in that day. Here we see that Jesus is coming, the Greeks are coming, the Jews had just said the whole world was going after him. Obviously, that was hyperbolic, uh, you know, hyperbole. Not the whole world wasn't in Jerusalem, but they're seeing all these people come. Now we see the Greeks coming, and what's the reason? It's that God is telling us that there were people, even in that day as they are today, hoping and believing that God loves all nations, all people, all tribes. And, and, and you know, that's the good news But it's also a good reminder for us today. It's a good reminder for us today that there is no one outside the reach and the arm of the grace of God. And you know, we we say that, we agree with that, we intellectually assent to that, but sometimes if we're honest, we have quite a different attitude toward people who are not like us, who may not hold to the party that we support. I'm going to talk a lot about that next week. Maybe they don't dress like that we do. Maybe they're from a culture or background different than we are. And what's happened, and I, I believe this all began when we did a series in the summer about judging others. And God's been quick to show me my hypocrisy, to show me how quick I am to judge people, how quick I am not having all the facts not giving them the benefit of doubt, but judging their behavior, judging their motives. We need to be quick to love people, to give them the benefit, to extend grace to them, just like God has to us. No one's outside the reach of the grace of God. So these Greeks come to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. They break these cultural barriers, and they see and want to talk to Jesus. Not just see him, they want to talk. That's really what it means. And this request was for Jesus a spark. This request, we want to see Jesus, was a signal that this climatic hour has dawned upon the Lord. Look with me at verse 23. Look at his reply. Oh, there's some Greeks here to see you. Jesus turns and says, the hour has come. The Greeks are here, the hour has come. For the Son of Man, we'll talk about that next week, what that means, that the Son of Man to be glorified. I do not think the disciples were ready to hear that. I do not think they were expecting to hear that. The, Jew, the Greeks are here. I think they were expecting to say, all right, well, give, give me five minutes. Bring them here. I can't talk. Whatever the answer may be, Jesus turns, and all of a sudden you have his response, and you have the, the Greeks and the people that came to see them just kind of just 
Go out into the distance. You don't hear from them more. You don't know if, if Jesus did turn and talk to them. You don't know if Jesus, what Jesus said to them. It's just, they just go out of view. And, 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 and I think the point is, meeting them in the now was relatively pointless because unless the hour had come, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground, which we'll read, unless he's lifted up from the earth, there is no way the Greeks are going to be with Jesus eternally. The, the now and then was a lot less important than the eternal. Now, take your Bibles, underline the word, the hour. The hour has come. He doesn't mean 60 minutes. We're not talking about the next 60 minutes. The hour has come is a particular period of time. And up to this point, we've seen the hour that was not yet. Now the hour is. John chapter 2. Jesus goes to a wedding. They run out of wine. The Mary turns to Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then in chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus tells his brothers, we're going to Jerusalem. And, and the brother's like, come on, let's go. And Jesus like, no, my time, listen, my time has not come, but your time is always here. Then in, in, in chapter 7, verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. Jesus keeps talking about this. In chapter 7, verse 30, they tried to arrest Jesus. And it says, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, he was teaching in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, the hour has come. Now, the hour has come. Now is the turning point, the divine appointment that the hour has come, the Son of Man to be glorified. It is the Passion Week. Jesus, the week will end with him on a cross. Just in case you're like, well, it doesn't really say the hour. What does the hour really mean? Does it really mean the cross? Well, look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He plainly states that the glorification of the Son of Man will take place at death. The divine timetable has come. And he uses this well-known principle of life through death in an agricultural sense to give the teaching on what's about to happen. It's death in the seed that brings forth fruitfulness. A seed, if you've got seeds, you leave it in a bag, it produces nothing. It stays in the granary, the outer shell. It's only when the seed is put in the soil, it begins to uh, decompose on the outside, and life brings, bursts forth and flourishes and yields a crop. It gives life to a plant which produces seeds, that produce plants, that produces seeds, and on and on and on it goes. And Jesus is saying, I will get glory through the path of his death. And in his death, in the seed that goes into the ground, I will bring much fruit. Jew, Greek, Gentile, religious, non-religious, morally good, morally bad, all of them will be able to come to God when I die, when I'm buried, and rise again. It cannot happen. It will not happen. Fruit will not be available, will not be seen, but through my dying. And now I'm going to tell you that the kingdom of God... The fruit of God cannot happen just looking at the example of God. 
You can't just look at the life of Jesus, see his kindness, his grace, and his mercy, and expect a kingdom to come. It is through death. That's what Jesus is saying. It is through my dying. It is through my burial. It is through my resurrection that life will come. Spiritual harvest is through death. And, and you know, that was the joy that was set before him. It was, was for the glory of God and, and the spiritual fruit, the harvest of souls that his death would produce. And let me say something else. I think the text, we're going to see this in the text. This principle of death and life, this principle of going into the ground producing fruit, coming to know Jesus that way is true, but it's not simply for him. It's us. Do you know that we have a religion where we believe we die every day? We're to die every day through our dying of self. Look at verse 25. Jesus talked about life. Death and life, and look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for what? Eternal life. The late Polish pianist, uh, composer, Perduski, he is a brilliant, brilliant uh, pianist. And a woman came up to him and said, you know, after a concert, you are, you are a genius. He responded, Madam, before I was a genius, I, wasn't, I was a drudge. He understood that he had to day by day by day by day hard work and self-denial by the piano to learn to become something that he wasn't. The Bible calls us every day, believers every day, to crucify the flesh by the Spirit. Romans 6.11 says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you love this life? Is this your best life now? Dr. Carson, New Testament scholar, he writes, for to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty. To love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and the brazen elevation of self to the apogee, highest point, of one's perception, and therefore an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. Such persons loses his life, causes his own perdition, end quote. You need to know, you'll read this in another place in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about hating and loving Loving and hating, loving, your mother, uh, loving this life, or hating your mother and father, he says, other places in Scripture. It's, it's, it's a, a Semitic idiom, a Hebrew idiom, and it's done, the, the hyperbolic or the, the hyperbole statement is meant to convey preference, a, a, a statement of clarity, a statement of sharp contrast. That's why, that's why they, that's the language they used in that day. You love your life, lose it, hate your life in this world, you save it. What's important to know is the word life is not biology, where we get the word bio. It's not bio. Uh, the, the study of living organisms. Right? We want to live. You're not saying you don't want to live uh, uh, physically. I mean, we have life preservers, right? Life belts, life rafts, lifeboats, lifelines, life nets, lifeguards, even life insurance, right? Which is kind of a contradiction. You don't get paid when you die. But anyway, we do have them. It's not bios, it's the word suke, which is where we get our word psychology, meaning the reason, the will, the emotion, the personality, the personhood. It actually was a word that was used to 
speak about our identity. Suke, our identity. Okay? What makes you distinct? What makes you valuable? What makes you uh, uh, of worth? Jesus is not saying, I want you to lose the bio, the, the life physical self, or even to lose your individual self as a person. That's part of our Imago Dei, a part of the image of God. What he's saying is, you must give up your identity in yourself and be raptured in me. Every culture, every culture points to something within the culture and says, if you gain these things, you attain to these things, you are somebody. You will know you are valuable when certain people do certain things, say certain things, you will have a personhood. Traditional cultures, it's about family. Having a good wife, a good kids, good home, good place, having family, and ah, oh, I feel like I've made it, I've attained something. Individualistic cultures, which we're becoming more and more, it's about what you attain in your bank account. What you attain in your company, what you obtain in your status, your finance, your job, it's about what you do. And then when you reach that certain place, which is completely an achievement-based, performance-based uh, identity, you become somebody. Jesus is saying here, he comes along and he's saying, listen, love this life, try and achieve your value, your worth, your significance, finding yourself and your personhood in this world, on your own. You'll miss me and you'll perish. But if you hate your life, you despise the work of trying to achieve being a self-made man or woman, however this world will offer it to you, if you despise that and you find it in me and the gospel, you will have eternal life. Love this life, you'll lose it. (laughs) Hate this life for me and the gospel, you'll have eternal life. Verse 26, and if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, will listen, the Father will honor him. Do you, do you see the invitation? Do you see the general call? Whoever loves his life loses it, verse 25. If anyone serves me, he will follow me. Listen, abandon your self-righteous, self-righteous uh, uh, and your personal ambitions and goals and objectives and follow Christ to the place of dying every day. And where I am, Jesus says, in my glory, you will be with me. That's an amazing statement. And look what it says. Eternal life with Christ and God spending forever honoring who? Look what it says. You, that's what it says. You catching that? Jesus saying here, God honoring me. I understand this through the gospel, but that's what it says. God forever honoring you. I mean, that's that's mind-blowing. I don't even know completely what that means. It's inconceivable, absolutely incomprehensible what that means, honoring us. I mean, why would we choose the things of this world and not choose the glory of God and the honoring of God through the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know. But we have to keep ourselves in check. What are we pursuing? What are we chasing? Where are we getting our life from? Suke from? Where are we getting that from? So we see this conversation he's having with his disciples and we see the glory and death. Now look at the glory and purpose. Jesus and the Father. Now he says in verse 27, my soul is troubled. What's interesting is John, the gospel according to John, does not have a Gethsemane scene 
When Jesus goes to the Gethsemane, he has the Lord's Supper uh, with his disciples. He goes out into Gethsemane and he falls to the ground. And the Bible says that he was sorrowful and troubled. And these are the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it says that he was sweating and, and drops of blood falling down from the ground from his forehead. He doesn't have any of that in this gospel account. What he has is this right here. That Jesus was terrasso, troubled, agitated, agitated, stirred up, like the water was stirred up, inner turmoil. And what we see is Jesus' total humanity here being troubled about what lies ahead of him. We saw him thirsty at the well with the woman at the well. We saw him angry and, 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 and flipping tables in John 2. We saw him weep with Mary at Lazarus at the tomb. We see him looking from the cross to his mother in caring concern, his full humanity, fully God, fully man, as he says to John, take care of my mom. Take care of my mom. Fully God, fully man. Verse 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's kind of a rhetorical question. What, what, you know, what shall I say? Save me? No, I don't think so. This is why I've come. This is the reason why I'm here. Again, reminiscent of Gethsemane. Remember? Father, take this cup from me. If not my will, but thine be done. And, and, his, and his struggle and his turmoil and his obedience. The hour must be faced and must be passed through. Jesus wrestling in prayer makes the request in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Jesus taught us to pray, remember? What did he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, glorify your name. Glory, glory, glory. Get glory in this. We've seen in John over and over, Jesus getting glory. It starts in the prologue in John 1.14. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have seen his what? Glory. Incalculable worth. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace, full of truth. Goes on to say, and we have received because of that grace upon grace. Beautiful. And yet, Jesus will say in John 8, I don't seek my own glory. (laughs) If I seek my own glory, really there's nothing there to see. It is the Father who glorifies me. And we see this glory that Jesus is, is, is showing the world and he's constantly reflecting it back to the Father. We see the Father and the Son glorifying each other. That's part of the Godhead in all eternity. One God, three persons glorifying one another from Eternity past to eternity future. So that's the request. Look at the reply in verse 28b. The Father speaks. The Father, from he- a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it. Remember baptism, Jesus? When the, when, the, when the skies opened up and the Father said, this is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. We're at the transfiguration and the intrinsic glory of Jesus pours out through his flesh and the cloud comes upon him, the Shekinah God, the presence of God and God speaks again. Know what he says? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And now he says glory will be given 
from the Father to the Son, I have glorified it. I have glorified it. I have glorified it in your miracles. I have glorified it in your incarnation. I have glorified it in your obedience. And particularly, I have glorified it in the resurrection of Lazarus. Martha, remember Jesus said, Martha, believe. If you believe, you will see what? The glory of God. I have glorified it. We don't know if he meant one particular thing or all of them. I think all of them. But one thing we know, what does he say next? I have glorified it. He says, I will glorify it again. We know what that means. We know that's a clear reference to the cross. It is on the cross where God's attributes are on display. His incalculable worth is seen, realized, and beautifully understood. His love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his holiness, his wrath and anger towards sin, and his perfect justice are being beautifully displayed on the cross. Where God puts forth his son, getting glory on the cross as he substitutes on our behalf for sinners and bears our punishment and our wrath in our place. And by his death, his incalculable value, beauty, and immeasurable worth are seen. Because by the death, God is able to redeem his people to forever glorify him. Forever. The book ends in Revelation chapter 22. In a new redeemed earth, the new city, it says there will be no temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city, listen to what it says. And the city has no need of sun or moon. No sun or moon to shine. Why? For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. Never be shut. Day and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Now family, it is right and good to talk about Jesus' work on the cross His substitutionary atonement, without it there is no life. To talk about his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace that extends to us sinners, rebellious sinners, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's good to do that. But I'm here to tell you that that is not the final and main reason Christ died. Christ died first and foremost to the glory of the Father. To bring glory to to his father. That is why I mentioned this in the first service. We will never sing this song above all. You know the song crucified, laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Not true. It is the glory, incalculable blazing glory value of Christ in himself, God in himself. That is the supreme reason Jesus went to the cross. The agony of the cross is supremely in order to glorify the Father. Some of you think, I really like that song, sorry. The cross shows the angels, the principalities in heavenly places, along with the whole world, the unfathomable riches of Christ and the glory of God, the love of God, the grace of God. It goes back to God. Now look at verse 29. The crowd stood there and like, whoa, what is going on? Is that thunder? They said, no, no, that's an angel. I mean, you have Jews there, you have Gentiles there, you have religious leaders there, you have disciples there. There's a lot of people going on and no one's figuring out what's going on. Jesus says, it wasn't even for my, you know, it wasn't even for my good. It's really for yours. They didn't even get it. Uh, John Calvin writes this. this I'll just read this and we'll move on. 
because it really hits it all. Calvin writes this. It was a monstrous thing that the multitude was obtuse, thick-headed, to such a plane of a miracle. Some were deaf and caught what God had pronounced distinctly only as a confused sound. Others were less dull, but yet detracted greatly from the majesty of the divine voice by pretending that its author was an angel. But the same thing is common today. He's writing this in the 1500s. First two. The same thing first today. God speaks plainly enough in the gospel in which there is also displayed a power and energy of the spirit which should shake heaven and earth. But many are as cold toward the teaching as if it came only from mortal man and others think God's word to be barbarous, stammering as it were nothing but thunder, end quote. Hear the gospel? What was that, thunder? Hear the gospel? That must be man talking. God speaks. Not everyone understands. But I'm sure, it doesn't say, it says that Jesus wasn't for his sake, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume here, and, and you don't have to agree with me, but I'm still going to say that it must have been pleasurable to Christ to hear his father speak. I'm just going to throw that out there. It wasn't for his sake. He already knew he was with the father. He never lost communication with the father. He knew the father's love, but it had to be an encouragement. Number three, glory and death, glory and purpose, let's end in glory and action. There are three things we'll look at. Number one, we see the glory of God in action as he's with the crowd, two negative, one positive, the first negative. Verse 31a, now, right now, the hour has come, now is the judgment of this world. Okay, the judgment of this world. Now, when he talks about the world, it could mean a lot of different things. God so loved the world. He's talking about the sinful people that God loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here, the word world means the, the attitudes and the ways of the world and the evil systems of the world. The, it, it's a glowing contradiction. The system, the attitudes of the world is a glowing contradiction to everything about God. We, we're an anti-God culture. Always has been. The world, listen, the world says this, the best way to find yourself and to be somebody is by going up. Up the corporate ladder, up the social chain, get more, be more, do more. But the cross says the way up is the way down. The way to get real power is to give power away, to serve others. The way to be really rich is to be generous, opposite of the world. All human society is in rebellion against its creator. And here we see the religious leaders Jesus is talking with the leaders of that day and, and, the, and the Jewish people of that day thought that they were passing judgment on Jesus not only because they didn't believe who he was. We saw this over and over again. Who's this guy think he is? But they thought they were passing judgment on who he thought he is and by nailing him to the cross. But what was really going on, Jesus, by rejecting Jesus, they were pronouncing judgment on themselves. Even so today, what we do with Jesus, how we judge Jesus, brings judgment on ourselves. If we trust him, we love him, he's a savior and a Lord, we have forgiveness and eternal life, but if we ignore him, or we reduce him to being such a spiritual guru, this great teacher, we do so at our own condemnation. Jesus is coming, dying, is a dividing point in all of history. The Jewish people rejected him. The leaders condemned him. Judas betrayed him. Roman soldiers mocked him and executed him. Pilate, who sentenced him, the whole society of evil men alienated from God who crucified him, including us. That includes us. The cross would condemn the world. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what John is saying. Although Jesus will come back at the end of the time and judge the entire world, but that judgment will merely consummate what has already been done by what you do with Jesus Christ. He is judgment. What side are we on? For those of us who've been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, don't come into judgment. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Judgment's passed, been taken to on the cross. We have no condemnation because Jesus was condemned in our place. But when we reject, we're in a state of eternal death, separated from God. And where did this judgment take place? It says right here, on the cross. On the cross. If you're united to him, his death becomes your death. His judgment, your judgment is the wrath he took so you don't have to. The world is judged on the cross. Look at number two. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler? Satan. People stood by the cross thinking Satan has won. Evil has won. Satan thought he had won, but what happened on the cross? He didn't win. He was defeated. What appeared to be his victory was really his defeat. And Jesus goes to the cross, and they think, oh, he's done, and yet God gives us the greatest source of life because of the grain of wheat that falls to the ground. It doesn't mean that Satan is cast out, there's no more evil in the world, just read the newspaper. It doesn't even mean that Satan and his evil beings don't infiltrate or harass believers. Jesus will pray in John 17, Lord, talking to the Father, Father, Protect them from the evil one. Peter will go on to say that we need to be mindful and and watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Paul will say that we are can be deceived by the enemy. But I'm here to tell you that what this passage tells us is that at the cross, Satan can no longer successfully accuse you in Christ. Revelation tells us that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ has come and the accuser, that Satan himself, has been thrown down. Satan's power over death has been conquered. Satan's power over our accusation has been conquered. Satan's power over death has been conquered on the cross. On the cross. John knows. John's here. John's writing this. So when he writes his letter in first epistle, in his first letter in first John, he says to them, little children, you are of God. You have overcome them for he who's in you, that's God through the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is Satan who is in the world. Hebrew tells us that Jesus took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So family, this is what you need to hear as we move on to our last thing. The ruler of this age Ephesians 2, the God of this world is condemned and judged. There may be wars going on, but the battle, excuse me, there may be battles going on, but the war has been completed. We have the victory in Christ. The courtroom is closed. The cosmic courtroom is closed. The portfolio is the cross. We have victory in Christ. We pass from death to life. It was his perfect life that atones for sin. And Jesus will get glory, the Father will get glory on the cross and the defeating and judging of the world and the casting out and the done away with Satan. It will happen. Number three, to close. This is one coin 
One coin, two sides. The first side, judgment, casting out Satan. And the bottom one, look what it says, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show of what kind of death he was going to die. If you have an NIV, an old one, and it says, but I, when I am lifted up, the word but I is not in the Greek. It's not right. It's not in contrast you have this, you got the feeding of Satan, you have the, the uh, judging of the world, and then in contrast, you have I'm lifted up. No, it's part of it. It is the reason for it. As I am lifted up, he says, when I'm hoisted up. How did, the, how did the Jews kill and execute people in the first century? They stoned them, right? And where were you on the ground? How did the Romans kill people in that day? Hoisted them up. Everyone knew what Jesus was talking about. When I am hoisted up, when I am lifted up on the cross, when I'm executed by crucifixion, when I, I will draw all means, all people to myself, he says. I will draw all people to myself when I am lifted up. That in which the world looks down on, God says I will use to glorify my name. Now, all people does not mean universal salvation. All people, sometimes all doesn't mean all. Right? We know that from John's account. We know that there are some people that will reject the gospel. You know, some people will refuse to believe on Jesus. When he says all people, it either means one of two things. It either means all people, going back to John 10, the Jew and the Gentile, one flock, one people that gave his life. He said, I lay down my life for my sheep. So he lays down his life for his sheep, and I have a fold that's not of, not of Israel, that's the Gentiles, and there'll be one flock. All people means one flock, or, which I think it does, that's true, by the way, but I think all people means all people, in the sense where the gospel is made available for the Jew, for the Gentile, for the religious, for the non-religious, all nations, all tongues, all tribes, that when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all kinds of people to himself. And you know that word drawn is the same word used in John 6, 44, where he says, unless no one comes to me unless the Father has sent me, draws them. Notice that it says draw. Pick up that word. Not driven. You need to repent of your sins right now. I think I'm gonna get baptized for my parents. Or I think I better do this because this is what they want me to do. That's driven. Being drawn is when the Spirit of God opens your heart and mind to see the beauty of Christ. When God reveals to you your sin and you see the incalculable worth of Christ, our salvation on the cross for our sins, and you are crushed to the point of bowing your knee and worshiping the beauty and the glory of God. And you see him for who he is. You're being drawn by the Father to the Son. And when you are, you will come to the place of seeing his beauty. And your eyes will be open. Your blind eyes will be open. Your dark hearts will be light, light, lit. And your hard hearts would be softened. And where is all this beauty and glory and majesty and love and grace shown? In the gruesome execution of the Savior. How's the Father going to get glory? How's the Son going to come to, to accomplish what he came to do? How is Satan going to be defeated? How is the world going to be conquered? How will sin be conquered? How will death be judged and the world be judged when Jesus is lifted up and highly exalted at his crucifixion? Philippians 2 says he became obedient to the point of death on the cross and therefore God highly, mega exalted him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the Bible's about.
That's why Paul said, I seek to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Because it is there that God demonstrates his love, his righteousness, our sin being being so gross and ugly that he had to die. He conquers our enemies, sin, death, and hell on the cross. It's about the cross. And here, Jesus, I'm going to Jerusalem. The hour has come. I'm not going there to gain ultimate power but to give up my life. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule but to serve. I'm not going to gain power by force but to give up my power by laying down my life. So let me ask you. What are you seeking after? What are you running to? Is the gospel your identity? Is is Jesus the Savior What his word says, his death on the cross is lifted up for you. Do you see his glory in that? Are you melted by his beauty and his love and his grace that he's given to you? Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never seen him in this glorious way. I pray. We pray as we close and we respond that you will see him in his glory. In the gruesome place of the cross and the glorious empty tomb in your place, rising from the dead, trust him, love him. Come to him. Don't cling to this life. You'll lose it. Cling to Jesus and you'll gain it. Father, thank you for our time. Father, get glory. Help us to see you. We we can't do this on our own. We won't see you on our own. Holy Spirit, come. Fan the flame that we may see the glory and beauty of Christ. His worth, his value in our lives, in our salvation as the one true God, please help us to lay aside the sin that hinders us and let us run the race, clinging to you, confessing, repenting of sin and gaining eternal life because we're in you. Help us, Lord, to respond in a way that brings you glory even now.